Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning and approach your word, we do so humbly. We feel less than adequate to to deal with the glorious truths that we are about to look at. We are, But we are reminded, God, that you are a wonderful and great God. And even though you are greater than we are, even in your most humble uh, humbleness, you are still greater than we are. We pray that you would come this morning, that you would open your word to us and help us not only to see and uh, to understand. We pray, God, that you would so stir our hearts to respond to you appropriately. Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to speak, to be faithful to your word. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. This morning we'll, we're looking at uh, Ephesians, uh, I'll just read 3 through 6. We won't get through all of this, but uh, we'll look through part of it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoptions as son through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of of his will. In his famous children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis pictures uh, a sort of a, a mysterious animal world in which there's the white witch that just rules over this world with great brutality. The way that Lewis describes it is it's always winter but never Christmas. I think I don't I don't like winter, so that is just a very striking description for me. But it's, uh, it's not until uh, Aslan comes, this lion, savior, king figure who appears and, and sacrifices himself, that we understand that there's actually a magic that's stronger than that of the white witch. As a matter of fact, Lewis calls it the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. Now, that magic is explained when Aslan comes to life again after sacrificing himself for a traitor. And this is the dialogue that he has between him and a young lady named Susan. She says, but what does it all mean? Asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, says Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. But it's not only in the world of Narnia that we see that deeper magic from before the dawn of time, if I could uh, use Lewis's phrase here. But even in scripture, we discover that eternal love and power are at work for our salvation. That our lion king, our, the lamb of God, was slain, as it were, before the foundation of the world, as Revelation 13 talks about. It's in the secret purposes of God from eternity are revealed. That Jesus is the elect of God, as Isaiah talks about. 
His life was a revelation of the electing purposes of God. Everything that happened to him did so because of divine predestination. There was a deeper magic from before the dawn of time operative in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now when we begin to think about the biblical doctrines of election and predestination in this light, I think sometimes there's, there's sort of a, a thrill that, that, that comes with that. And that's definitely the case for the New Testament writers whenever they wrote about it. For them, these truths were not controversial, a lot like they have been through church history, but they were joyful. They saw that if they were united to Christ, this meant that in choosing Christ and loving him, God had first chosen them. And I want us to look at this this morning and see not what our church believes, but I want us to see what the scripture says about this. And I want us to look at the father's work in the life of his people as he chooses a people for himself in Jesus Christ. Look at verse four. He said, even as he, that is God, the father, chooses us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, oftentimes people think of their salvation beginning when someone comes and shares the gospel with them and they realize their sins and they repent of their sins and they receive that gospel message and they respond to it by faith, which is true. But Paul here this morning is pulling back the curtain of time to show us that something more is going on behind the scenes than we realize. He tells us here that before we were even born, actually before the world even existed, that God chose in Christ a people for himself, individuals who would make up the church. Now, the, the word that he uses here for choose, some of your translations may say, you know, he elected us, but uh, the ESV says, even as he chose us in him, that word eklego in verse 4 means to pick out for himself. It's actually a reflexive verb. God chose for himself those who would be part of his family. You see, God the Father and God the Son in eternity past made a covenant with one another or, or an agreement, if you would, that the Father would give salvation to the elect or those he chose if the Son would come to earth and pay the price for their sins upon the cross. Hebrews 13, 20 refers to this as the eternal covenant. We even sang about that in uh, this morning as we saw, sang that song about sovereign grace. It talks about the eternal covenant. Theologians refer to that as the covenant of redemption. And Jesus mentions this idea. We see this coming out in various places in Scripture. But even in the night before Jesus was betrayed on the cross, he prayed to the Father in John 17, and specifically verse 4, he said, I glorified you. He's saying this to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And even before that, in John chapter 6, verse 37, and you're welcome to turn to these so you don't have to just take my word for it, but John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all, 
that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That the Father is here to fulfill the will and the plan, or the, the Son is here to fulfill the will and the plan of the Father. And, and later on in John 6, in verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. So the reason anyone is a Christian is obviously because they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But why does one person believe the gospel and a per another person not? Was it because that, that the person who believes is more spiritual or more enlightened than the one who does not believe? The Bible says no. It's, because of, it's not because of anything in us or because of anything that we have done, but because of God's electing love. So all these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ have their source in the electing love of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that is great news as I think about my Christian walk with the Lord and the struggles that I have in my life. Or as a pastor, as I get to come alongside you and your struggles and your difficulties in life. To understand that the foundation of our salvation is in nothing that's in us. Nothing in us who are weak. Nothing in us who are ever changing. Nothing in us who are fickle in our walk with the Lord. Mixed in our affections. Oftentimes inconsistent in our faith. Rather, it is in the foundation of God's own sovereign choice that occurs even before we were born that our salvation and our blessings are secure. Now, oftentimes, people have various responses to such a teaching as this. Some are very excited about that. They're very happy to, to hear that as we see the Apostle Paul and, and others as you read this in Scripture. I know when I was in seminary, I heard this for the first time. Roger Nicole stood up and he said, you know, this is what some Christians believe, and he laid out one view, and he said, and this is what other Christians believe, and he laid out, you know, God's election and predestination. And, and I listened to that, and I thought, well, that's not what we believe. And, of course, he said, and this, of course, is what we believe. And I thought, what? This doesn't make sense. I was anything but excited to hear, and that's sort of the other response. Oftentimes, people really struggle with this doctrine. Sometimes they even become very angry, and that's how I was when I heard this. And he said, if, you, if you're hearing what I'm saying today, and this is not sitting well with you, he goes, let me recommend to you a really good book that's come out that I think will help to sort of clear everything up for you. He said it's called, and I had my pen poised, and I was ready to write down the title and the author, he said, it's called the Holy Bible. He said, just take your Bibles and read it. He says, as a matter of fact, I encourage you to prove me wrong. He said, do that. Well, I was a determined young man, and so I was going to prove him wrong. And I went home and I began to read the scriptures. And everywhere I turned, I just kept running into this. I just kept running into this. And I was like, wow, how could I not have seen this? But brothers and sisters, there are those who, who, who do struggle with this. And there are some who even become very angry and hostile towards God's teaching on this. And there are some who would even say that this is not the teaching of Scripture. It is the teaching of man. And it's interesting, I think, um, and I just see this over and over, wherever we see this whole idea of election and predestination dealt with, that very rarely 
do the Bible teachers ever defend it or do they explain it? Instead, they just state it. Now, the exception probably is Paul in Romans chapter 9, where he takes a lot of the objections that we have, where we say, now, wait a minute. If God elects us in his sovereign grace before anything was created, then that's not fair. Or, or that makes us a robot or, you know, how could God hold us accountable if, if he did that? If he elected us and he elected some and not others, then why could he send people to hell? Paul deals with all of that in Romans chapter 9. But for the most part, Scripture just states it. And I think part of the reason why it's such a struggle is because we as human beings, and I know this is where I was in my walk with the Lord, I wanted to be able to add something to my salvation. Just a little bit. Even if it was just the fact that I trusted the Lord and, but, and so some hear this doctrine and they really struggle with it and they say, well, really, this is a human invention. And, and they point oftentimes to men like John Calvin, whose name is given a theological position that strongly affirms this doctrine, and that's namely Calvinism. Calvin would roll over in his grave to have a system of doctrine like that named after him. Uh, not because he didn't agree with it, but he was just a humble man and he knew it didn't come from him. But the reality is, it wasn't Calvin that came up with this. Actually, this has been taught in the church for, for, for many, many, many centuries. You know, Calvin was in the 16th century, but even in the 4th century, we see Augustine, who dealt with God's sovereign election. And, and even before that, we see others who held to this position and taught it. But, you know, in one sense... While that is encouraging and affirming to see that this has actually been the view in church history, as a matter of fact, if you take the thousands and thousands and thousands of years of church history, what you're going to find is it's only been recently that election and predestination have not been the main view of the church. That oftentimes uh, that this whole idea of, of free will was just something that was not really there in the church. But, you know, having said all that, that's not what's so important. What really matters is, is what the Bible says about it. And I want to just give you just a few verses. Uh, the first one I'll just mention. You can write it down. 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1, Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus to those who are elect. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.18. You can turn there if you want. 2 Timothy 1. I said 18. 2 Timothy 1.8. Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. But then notice what he says at the end, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then if I could just give you uh, one more uh, passage. Uh, there are way many more. I just had to limit my time. But look at Romans chapter 9. Uh, this is probably the, the, the clearest illustration. Romans 9, verses 10 through 13. Paul says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
She was told the older will suffer, serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a very bold statement to say that Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And we even see God's electing love for the nation of Israel. If you think about it, when God created uh, that nation, he didn't, he didn't choose, or he did choose Israel out of all the other nations of the world. Now, I do want to be fair because I think that the word election can be used different ways in Scripture. And I think John MacArthur is probably correct in saying that there's at least three different uses of that word election. And I think we have to consider those. The first is called theocratic election, or at least that's what he calls it, theocratic election. And that is where God chose the nation of Israel. You know, that, that he, he chose them for a special place. It says, for, for you are a holy people unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a special people. In Deuteronomy 7, 6. But uh, he says, I didn't say, um, okay, I'm going to choose you because you're the greatest nation or because you're the wealthiest nation or you're the biggest nation. But God set his affection upon that nation. And, and he did so as he desired. But I, 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 we do have to acknowledge and watch that there, this in no way had any effect on personal salvation. As a matter of fact, in, in Romans chapter 9, if we could refer to that, Paul says, Not all Israel is Israel. Not all those who are Jews are truly the Israel of God. And so there were those who were elect part of that nation who didn't believe in the Lord. And so there was no... You know, personal salvation there. But then there's the second kind of election, and that's called vocational election. And there are times when God chooses people to a particular office, like in Deuteronomy 18, where he chooses the Levites out of Israel to be the priests. Or uh, we see where uh, in the New Testament, Jesus calls the 12 apostles. He called the 12 to the task of being apostles, but only 11 of them were called to salvation as we see that Judas betrayed Jesus. So that's why, and that's what we see in John 15, 16, where Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, speaking of that, of the apostles. But there is a third use of that word election, and that is in terms of salvation, that salvational election. And that's what he's talking about here in Ephesians 1. He's not talking about theocratic election or vocational election, but salvific election, where he says uh, that he has chosen us. In Romans 16, 13, he also uses that language. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. That's salvation. That has God ordained that we should be a people individually uh, chosen by him. Now, I've had many people that I've talked to who come up with all kinds of objections. And one of the things that I hear people say is they'll say, well, I don't believe in all that election stuff. I believe that everybody chooses. And there are passages that support that. Let me just read just a few. John 3:15. Whoever believes in him, that is Christ, may have eternal life. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Or probably the clearest is Romans 10.13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Okay, so there is that choice. So people will say, so what do you do with that? You know, how can God 
choose others, and yet he calls everyone to come and promises that anyone that comes to him will be saved. And I usually say something like this. Yes, I believe both. Because the Bible teaches both. And they say, now wait a minute, but, but how can you reconcile those? And I say, I cannot. You know, but I know that the Lord Jesus Christ teaches both. I know that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God reveals both. And we see that even like in Acts 13, 48. It says that when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Okay, and it talks about how they believed. Now, let me give you the full verse, though. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And so there's a sense in which we do. We are saved because we believe. But behind that is God's work of electing love. And you might be wrestling with that this morning, and you may be even very angry with me right now. But I would encourage you, your question should not be, do I understand this, or does it make sense to me? Or even it shouldn't be the question of, do I like this teaching? The question ought to be, is it taught in the Bible? You see, I think there's probably no doctrine that humbles us more as human beings than that of election. Um, the Bible talks in Deuteronomy 29, 29 about the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the, the words of this law. You see, there's a sense in which th that election takes us beyond ourselves and our understanding where we cannot comprehend these things. That's why I can stand up here Sunday after Sunday and I can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and I can give the free offer to the gospel to everybody that sits here. Because there's a certain call in the Bible to come and to believe. But I also know that those who do come to him come because of God's electing love. And so God chooses us. But it says here that he chooses us that we might be holy and blameless before him. Now, these two words that he uses, holy and blameless, really describe the same thing. Uh, holiness refers to that inward purity of heart, the work that God does in our hearts. Blameless therefore, refers to the outward of the external purity that we have. It's sort of like the picture of a fruit. It would be a piece of fruit that has no specks on it, no, no wrinkles, no decay, no anything. Because that fruit is healthy on the inside, we see that there is healthiness on the outside. And that's what God says he has elected us to be holy and blameless. So Paul says that the Father does that, so that we would have no pollution before him as we are in his presence. Now, we know that positionally in Jesus Christ, that's how we stand. That's how the Father sees us as we stand before him. But I would suggest to you that Paul is talking more here than just about our positional standing in Christ, but in who he is making us to be as the Holy Spirit does his work in us. So many people will think that election causes people to be proud and unfortunately, I have to say, I've run into too many people where that is actually true. They have become very arrogant as they come across this doctrine of election. Because they'll say, I am the elect. But that's not at all uh, God's intent, as we see in Scripture. 
But instead, election is to promote that holiness in life and, and, and not a sense of pride, nor even a sense of license. You know, some people who say, well, I'm a Christian, and so it doesn't matter who, how I live or how I act. You know, I, it's okay, God will save me. I'm the elect. And they just continue to live their life. But that's not the teaching of Scripture. Now, it might be worth noting, I should probably clarify this, that God does not choose us because we are holy. He chooses us in order that we might be holy. That that is the goal of election. It's not the basis of God's election. And it's interesting that the first thing that Paul mentions when he talks about this doctrine of election is holiness. You know, you might expect that he would say that God has elected us to forgive us. But the problem with that is, is if God just elected us to forgive us, then how we live our lives after we are, quote unquote, saved or justified, uh, we may live however we choose to live. And I think there are many Christians that live that way, that they have their faith over here and their life over here. And so if you ask them, are you a Christian? Oh, yes, I'm a Christian. They might even be able to open their Bibles and show you in the front of their Bibles the date and time that they prayed a prayer. But if you look at their life, you don't see that life of holiness. You don't see that life of godliness. And what God wants us to see here is that the work that he is doing and the lives of those that he has chosen is so complete that he will make them holy. He doesn't just stop with, quote unquote, saving us or redeeming us. It carries all the way through to our sanctification as well. So the priority of the Christian life is not happiness, but it is holiness. It is that sense of being set apart and used of God for his glory. Uh, George Swinock, who was a, a Puritan, he said, Sow holiness and you'll reap happiness. Sow holiness and you'll reap happiness. But it doesn't work the other way around. If you seek to be happy, you won't necessarily be holy. And I think oftentimes we sometimes see holiness as getting in the way of our happiness. Oftentimes I think we want to fit into the materialistic society around us. We find our joy even sometimes in self-centered lifestyle. God wants us, though, to be different from the world, finding our joy in a relationship with him. Where the world is enticing us to be a consumer, Jesus calls us to be a cross-bearer. Listen, if you would, to the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, I think, brings great encouragement. He says, because, commenting on this passage, he says, because we have been chosen to holiness, we must and will become holy. Let me say that again. Because we have been chosen to holiness, we must and will become holy. In other words, if God has elected us to something, he's going to carry it out. According to Paul, we are not chosen with the possibility of holiness, but to the realization of holiness. Being chosen and being holy are inseparable. God, who has chosen you to holiness, will make you holy. And if the preaching of the gospel does not do so, does not make you holy... God has other means and methods. He may strike you down with illness. He may ruin your business. God will make you holy because he has chosen you unto holiness. And that means that if we don't willingly pursue that holiness, that God will love us enough to discipline us 
to bring about that holiness in our lives. You know Hebrews 12.6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So, you don't want to pray? God will be gracious enough to bring reasons into your life to cause you to pray. You don't want to tithe? God will teach you to live frugally by other means. You don't want to give up cherry sin? Well, God will work its painful consequences out in your life until you come to Him and you ask Him for the grace to repent of these sins. Our God is good. Now, that doesn't mean that every trial that comes into our life is God's correction. But if you are a Christian and you are struggling or you're not interested in being holy, God promises to discipline you to make you holy. Matter of fact, in Hebrews 12 and verse 10, just a couple verses later, he says, But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. You see, God's not this ogre in the sky that's like trying to conform us into something that we would never want to be. He knows that to walk in holiness is the most glorious and gracious, great thing to do. And so he is doing this out of love for us. So the wise Christian longs to be more holy, to be less worldly, and to have a sinful passion subdued and to be more like God. And so, brothers and sisters, as you are here this morning and you struggle to walk consistently with the Lord, let me encourage you that God will finish what he has started in you. But this is not merely just a, a future promise. Sometimes I think we hear that promise and think, yeah, I know, because someday I'm going to die and then I'll be just like Jesus. And so we just sort of we're like just abiding our time. But I want you to hear the good news this morning that God is working in the hearts and the lives of each one of his children today to cause them to be holy. Because he loves you that much. But even now, God works in our hearts. Everything in our lives is meant to make us holy. We must not think of holiness as something that we can either pursue or not pursue. Um... Because God said that that is the purpose for those that are his children. You know, as we come this morning, I don't know about you, but I, I pray that as you think about God's electing love and how he chose us even before the foundation of the world, that he has this plan. And next week we're going to talk about predestination, which is sort of the, the carrying out of that plan. But I hope this encourages you to see that, that God is uh, doing great things in your life, even in the midst of your struggle. You know, one person said that holiness is wholeness, that is, the wholehearted devotion of the whole nature to God, the consecration of every power to His service. And what this does is it leads us to lean hard upon God and to seek His companionship. You know, uh, Oswald Chambers said, he goes, it's quite true to say that I can't live a holy life. Anybody in here relate to that? But he said this. He said, I can't live a holy life, but you can decide to let Jesus make you holy. And he will. And he promises to do so. And so we must not just pray that against the sin in our lives, but we must pray that God would make us holy. And I sort of like the way that Tozer put it, as he says, as we're thinking about this whole thing of praying for holiness. Tozer says, go to God and have an understanding. Okay? He says, tell him 
that it is your desire to be holy at any cost and then ask him never to give you more happiness than holiness. When your holiness becomes tarnished, let your joy become dim and ask him to make you holy whether you're happy or not. Be assured that in the end, you will be as happy as you are holy. But for the time being, let your whole ambition be to serve God in Christ. You see, the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy person out of an unholy world and make that person holy and to put him back into that world and to keep that person holy. But that's exactly what God is doing. And so I want us to just be encouraged this morning that the Lord is at work in the hearts of his people, that he will sustain us and he will complete that work. Let us give ourselves to that. Let us be hot after or to pursue um, these things, these matters, not only in prayer, but in trusting the blessings and the promises of God, knowing that he is faithful to complete them. Please bow with me, if you would, for a time of silence and meditation. Our Father, we thank you so much for the work that and the plan of salvation that you have laid out uh, for your people. God, it is so encouraging to know that even though we might struggle, even as we are in this world and sometimes our hearts are drawn to these things, that our sure assurance comes in the fact that you are working out your plan. I pray, God, that you would encourage the ones that are here today that are struggling, that feel faint and weak. Lord, that you would be so good to, to not only encourage them of these promises, but Lord, you would continue to work in their lives and their hearts to draw closer to you. Father, I pray for those that, that trust you wholly. Uh, Lord, we all struggle to some degree, but Father, I pray that even in our strength that we would not trust in our own abilities and therefore fall as we look to our own strength. But God, that we could continue to trust your promises Oh, Lord, I pray that you would give us great boldness as a church to go and to know that you are working out your plan and you are using your church to do so. So help us, Lord, to be faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, not being dissuaded when someone rejects us or rejects the message that we have. Let us just continue to persevere to know that you have called us to give the free offer of the gospel and knowing, God, that you are working out your plan. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.